And I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans 7. Romans chapter 7 this morning. Been looking forward to this final paragraph in Romans 7 as I think it captures a good bit of what we've been talking about and paints some new pictures, gives some new analogies for what we experience as believers in Christ. Uh, in Romans seven twenty one through 25, Paul gives us a final paragraph about what's going on with believers, and he gives us uh, a glimpse of what's going on within us, and he puts this small glimpse of our bright future in the paragraph as well, so it's a very interesting and helpful passage. We've been working through a challenging passage, to say the least, Romans 7. Uh, in this passage, Paul talks about uh, the ongoing battle that we have with the presence of sin in our lives. You remember what we've seen already in Romans 7? Last week, we spent some time uh, thinking about who the I is in Romans chapter 7. Uh, to learn that I think it's best to see this as Paul referring to himself. And he's referring to himself as he writes the letter to the Romans. So Paul is talking as himself for mature believers, and he has some stark things to say about what's going on inside. He says things like this. The law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Paul says, I do not do what I want to do. He says, I do not even understand my actions. I do the very thing I hate. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Now in our passage today, as he concludes, Paul will use the analogy of war to describe what's going on inside of us. Paul wants us to know about the unceasing war that rages within us. Yesterday I was watching um, golf, PGA Tour golf, and I know that doesn't sound very entertaining, uh, but I like to watch people who know what they're doing when they golf versus how I golfed on Friday. I was watching golf. Uh, the commentator was telling the story of a 21-year-old young man who has it all. He's already won on the PGA Tour. He's a champion. But the narrator spent the most time talking about the internal struggles of this 21-year-old man. He described that this, this young man has been honest to say that although he is a champion and he has everything you could want, he struggles with deep depression and anxiety. As I heard the commentary, I couldn't help but stop and pray 
for this young man. I, I hope he finds Jesus. I hope someone shares with him Jesus. But uh, as believers, we also have an internal struggle, a battle within us that Paul wants us to realize. Now, one of the hardest uh, things about this concluding passage is that Paul will use the word law seven times in this one little paragraph. Uh, And he kind of plays with the term and he uses it in different ways. I want to show you these in your Bible. I'll put some of them up on the uh, the slide here behind me. But look down at verse 21. Uh, Paul says, so then I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. Paul talks about a law in verse 21. Uh, in verse 22, at the beginning of that verse, he talks about the law of God. He says, for I delight in the law of God. At the end of the passage, he'll, he'll return to a discussion of the law of God, used twice here. Um, in the next verse, verse 23, he talks about another law. Another law. And then he talks about, in, in verse 23 as well, the law of my mind. The law of my mind. And then, you know, as if it weren't challenging enough for us, in this one paragraph, he also talks about the law of sin twice. Once in verse 23, once in verse 25. So he uses the word law in a bunch of different ways. And I think there's a key to understanding these uses. And and we'll deal with each in particular as we go through this. But we're going to have to reckon a little bit more once again with law. Now as we work through the passage, verses 21 through 25, I see three parts to it. I see a rule That's verses 21 through 23. A solution, verses uh, 24 and the first part of verse 25. And then a final summary at the end of verse 25. It says, we work through it. We'll look at the rule, the solution, and the summary. We start with the rule, verses 21 through 23. Uh, Let's read those verses. I'll, I'll read it out loud. You follow in your Bible. It says, So I find it then to be a law. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Okay, so first we're going to see a rule. And the way Paul develops this is he gives the rule in verse 21. He states it very simply, and then he explains how the rule works. Okay, so the rule itself is verse 21, and he states it succinctly. It's one little sentence. Here's the rule. When I want to do right, evil is present, or evil is right there. Okay, now, I prefer those translations to the way the ESV has translated this, this final part. Uh, they say evil is close at hand. Okay, and while that's helpful to show nearness, it's not helpful because when I see, think close at hand, I think it's outside of me. 
It's near me, but not in me. And Paul's point all along is, no, no, the evil is inside of me. Uh, And so I I prefer, again, uh, that what he's saying here is when he would do what is right, evil is present. It is right there. And that's how I would uh, translate uh, this part of it. So Paul says, evil is right there when I want to do what's right. That's the rule. That's Paul's whole conclusion. It's the principle of indwelling, ever-present evil inside of a believer. That's the rule, the principle. It's always there. Now, the way the rule works is verses 22 and 23. Because you might be thinking, well, I don't know if I believe what pastor's saying. You know, I, I don't know if evil's always there. Right there, inside of me. Verses 22 and 23, it's his explanation for how this works. In those two verses, Paul explains the rule or the principle by using the word law four times. And it can get confusing, but again, here's a key I think that will help you. I think Paul is writing a little bit like what you would find in the Proverbs. He's writing using parallelism. Okay, and you could talk to Roger DePriest about the Proverbs and parallelism sometime. But, but let me show you what I mean in this passage. Um, first, Paul talks in verse 22 about the law of God, and he says it's in my inner being. He's going to return to talk about that law at the end of the passage. But then in the, in the next phrase, he uses uh, another description. He says, in my members, there is another law. So the law of God, the law of Moses, is in my members. Uh, God's law is in my mind, he's going to say later. But uh, in my members here is another law, verse 23. And that's different than letter A. In the next phrase, he'll return to the first one. He'll say, the law of my mind. I think the law of God that is in Paul's inner being is the same thing as the law of my mind. And, and then uh, a little bit later on, the very next phrase, he'll say, the law of sin in my members. Okay, so I think Paul's writing in kind of a parallel way about two different laws. He uses the word law four times. I think it's two different laws. Paul says, in his mind, in his inner being, he delights in or agrees with law number one, God's law. The law given through Moses on Mount Sinai. In Paul's mind, in his inner being, he delights in that law. But in his body, he sees another law, which he calls, at the end, the law of sin. Law of sin. So we're going to work through this passage and try to understand these things. In his body, Paul sees Another rule or principle, it is the law of sin. By God's leading, Paul's like a a spiritual doctor that can perform an x-ray so he sees. Paul uses the word sees. I see in my members. Paul sees inside of himself. He sees the real problem. The problem is the internal law of sin. 
That is, this passage speaks to the power that sin continues to exercise over us as believers in Jesus Christ. Although it's true that sin will not roll over us. Right? Remember that in Romans? Sin will not roll over us. And uh, we will win the war with sin. Here, Paul is speaking about the daily tactical defeats that we sometimes experience at the hands of sin. Indwelling sin. This is the law or governing principle of sin. This is what Paul still finds in his body. Indwelling sin. Proclaiming its own law. And he sees believers like himself sometimes submitting to a ruler that they're no longer even under. Right, so this is how I, I, I see his discussion of how it works. But, but he continues to describe how it works. Did you see, he gives some participles here to help us. He says, this law which comes forth from the ruler's sin that's inside of me wages war. You see that? Is it just in my Bible? It wages war. It's hard for me as a speaker not to move. They told me I can't move. I like to move to keep you awake. Wake up. Okay, right here. Right here. It It is waging war. The law of sin is waging war against God's law that we love in our mind. The words waging war are a participle. It means to be at war with. The power that sin exerts within us is at war against the law of God that I love in my mind. But it doesn't stop just with that one description. He continues. You see it? It is also taking me captive. To itself, the law of sin is taking me captive to itself. That is, although sin will not rule over us, and although sin is a defeated power, that doesn't stop it from trying to force its way on me and make me again its captive. That's the rule. That Paul sees. That's the life principle within him. And that's how it works. Sin's law wages war in me and takes me captive. That sounds pretty encouraging, right? Let's move on to Roman numeral two. And I'll advance the slide here. The solution. Verses 24 and 25. 24, and actually the first part of verse 25. Paul can't help but inject some other thoughts here about a solution that believers will find in the future. In the future. Here Paul interrupts the flow of thought by injecting some emotional cries and shouts. You can put exclamation points in translations. I'd I'd encourage you to do some of that here. Especially in verse 25. Here Paul moves from the rule of indwelling sin to its solution. Look at how this starts. Verse 
24. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul starts out by summarizing his condition. He uses one word, wretched. Puts it right at the front of the verse in the translation, or in in, in the original. The word means miserable or distressed. Oh, miserable or distressed man that I am. Again, Paul might... One might wonder, how could Paul say this about himself, right? He's an apostle. He's spiritual giant, right? But I think one commentator helps us understand a little bit more of what Paul is getting at here. It's C.E.B. Cranfield, and he says this. He says, the farther men advance in the Christian life and the more mature their discipleship, the clearer becomes their perception of the heights to which God calls them. Not only that, he continues, and the more painfully sharp their consciousness of the distance between what they ought and want to be and what they truly are. That's a long quote by Cranfield, but the point he's making is the farther you go in your walk with the Lord, the more you realize two things. The more you realize the heights to which God calls you. You recognize him more and more for his absolute pure holiness. And you understand that we need to be like God who's perfect. That's the call. But then you realize also the great depths and distance, as Cranfield says, the distance between what you ought and want to be and what you truly are. So listen, if you're thinking, you know, it's a 70 or 80, can't wait till I'm 70 or 80 years old. Because then I'll be really godly. I'll be almost like a saint or something. Well, we're all holy, right? But I'll really achieve. Well, the reality is you might be more, you might, might be more spiritually developed than you are now. But you'll likely also understand more and more of your own sinfulness and how far you uh, fall short. Although Paul was advancing in Christ's likeness, his perception of himself grew clearer and clearer so that he could say, wretched man, that I am. When I hear someone talk about how good they are or how much they've changed so they're not like really like the sin that they previously committed, I'll have to be honest with you as a pastor, I cringe. I try not to do it like physically. But like internally when I hear someone start talking about well this is not the way I really am. Or I you know I can't wait for you to see what I am like. I'm thinking, I, I don't want anyone to know what I'm like. It's terrible. Terrible. They say, I can't wait to see how well I'm doing. I, I'm just not like that anymore. I hope people see me for who I am. I think, well, that's not what Paul, that's not how Paul saw himself. Paul says, remember, 
nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. He says in another text, I am the chief of sinners and here, wretched man that I am. It's so bad in Paul's regular battles against sin in his flesh that he knows then that salvation will have to come from somewhere else. Someone, something outside of him. So he asked in this verse, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will be, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now that is a cry for deliverance. And I think Paul is amping up the drama here. He knows that his physical body is enslaved to death. It's corruptible, decaying, sin-filled body. So Paul questions here about uh, the phrase says, this body of death. Paul wants deliverance from his body that is subject to death. And that's all he says about it there. Now, I think Paul expands on this in another passage. I invite you to turn just briefly, 2 Corinthians 5. Flip over there for a second. 2 Corinthians 5. What is the body of death, this body of death, that Paul wants to be saved from? 2 Corinthians 5, 2 through 4, I think, is a description of it. Here, Paul's being real about his ministry in chapter 4 and 5, and he's facing all kinds of oppositions. He's almost quit. He feels like things are going difficult. And at the end of chapter 4, he says that he's looking forward to the eternal glories of God. But then in chapter 5, look at verse 2. That's where we're going. Chapter 5, verse 2. He says, indeed, and I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, my favorite translation of this passage. Paul says, indeed, we groan in this body, desiring to put on our dwelling from heaven. Verse 3, since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Verse 4, indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, this body, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed so that mortality, what's that word mean? Death. Comes from the same root for death. So that death may be swallowed up by life. Here in this passage, I think Paul's describing this internal groaning that believers should have. Right? We can't wait to cast off this old body. Why? Because it's subject to death. We can't wait until it's swallowed up by life. Right? Second Corinthians 5, 2 through 4. Brothers and sisters, I think not not enough of us speak this way about deliverance from our body, our bodies. We we often say things like, I'm not quite ready to go to heaven yet. There are a lot of other things I want to experience or do. We don't speak the way Paul does here about who's going to deliver me from the body of death and this raging war within Perhaps we don't speak this way about deliverance uh, because we don't think this way. Perhaps that's because we've not really wrestled 
with the struggle that is happening in us every day as believers. <sighs> Wake up. Oh, here we go again. Battle. In the foxhole. Again. With what? My sin. It just keeps going. Instead of wrestling with that, we amuse ourselves. We don't want to stop and think about it. We turn on the radio and just drown it out. Turn on the TV, drown it out. I don't want to think about the battle right now. We amuse ourselves. Or we distract ourselves. Or worse yet, we deceive ourselves, refusing to actually do the math. And add up just how bad our sins are. And how often we sin. Now when Paul asks this question, who will deliver me from this body of death? He uses a future tense verb. And that's because, I think it should be translated, will deliver. It's best to see Paul asking a question about his future deliverance. And that's when his cries break forth in verse 25 into a shout for joy. Paul's cry for help turns for a shout to joy. Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Here I think what Paul's doing is he's confidently boasting in the future deliverance that God will effect for him and other believers through Christ Jesus. Jesus, our Lord. Let me say it a different way. Paul speaks of the liberation that we will experience in the last days when Jesus returns and frees us from our sinful, physical bodies to serve in new, sinless, glorified bodies. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who will deliver us? God will. How? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, men and women, there is not a single one of us who can deliver himself or herself from this ongoing conflict. You don't have the power to eradicate the flesh. You don't have enough self-will to get out of it. You can't get rid of the unwanted guest called indwelling sin or the sinful nature, sinful flesh. I hear that getting squirrels in a house infested with them, getting rid of them is quite a challenge. Some of you have told me this before. Gladly I've never had that experience yet. But imagine... Imagine that you were in a home with an attic and crawl spaces full of squirrels. You try to ignore it. You carry on conversations. You ignore them, but they keep, you, you keep seeing them and you keep hearing them all around. You can't get rid of them. They're always there. That's the situation with your sinful flesh. It is. It's always there. You cannot get rid of it in your own strength. The final ultimate deliverance from indwelling sin has not happened yet. 
But one day it will through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think Paul's argument here is much like what he does in 1 Corinthians 15. Only there he talks about death. What can deliver us from death? 1 Corinthians 15. Perhaps you remember that passage. Paul suggests that death will be defeated ultimately in the future. I'm just going to read to you a few places where he says it. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul considers what will happen and he he tells us when this will happen. He says it will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye when the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised and we shall be changed. Death will be overcome and eradicated for us in that moment when we see Jesus in the clouds at the rapture. So Paul's point in Romans 7, I think, is much the same, but it's about sin. We will be delivered ultimately, finally, from indwelling sin when we see Jesus. Now, I'd be really tempted to move on from this little phrase, thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. But I just want to keep us on the mountaintop for a little bit more. Right? I live in the valley. Let's think about this a little bit more. Think about how great this will be. How great it will feel feel to have our indwelling sin nature completely eradicated. Imagine the war is over. The enemy, sin, defeated, actually destroyed. going to say, can I get an amen? But I've gotten some. <laughs> Any else, anyone else weary of the battle and just want to think about this? As we sang this morning, oh, that day when free from sinning, we shall see his lovely face. Continues, come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring your promises to pass. You long for that? Another way of saying all of this is that our just, in our justification, we have been made free from the penalty of sin. I, I've heard this description from other preachers, but in our justification, we've been made free from the penalty of sin. In our sanctification, we are being made free from the power of sin. And in our glorification, we will finally and completely be made free from sin's power and presence. Hallelujah. That's what's going to happen. That's the bright future. And the only way for us to respond to such a bright future is to offer thanksgiving to God like Paul does here. I mean, how can we do anything less then thank him for the future deliverance from sin and death that we will experience in Christ. Now, after doing all of this, Paul talks about the rule. 
Sin's always here. And then he calls us up onto the mountain, right? Gives us the solution. It's coming. One day in the future. In the end part of verse 25, he takes us back down into the valley, called the, the valley of reality, or the foxhole of reality. And he gives us a final summary of the points he's made in the chapter. Look at the middle of verse 25. So then, here's my conclusion. I myself, emphatic here, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Paul's been proving his thesis all throughout Romans 7 about the struggle that's inside of him, about sin. Now he restates it. With his mind, he serves God's law. With his flesh, however, he says the law, uh, he serves the law which proceeds from sin, which sin propounds. I think Paul knows that in this life, pursuing Christ is an ongoing, sometimes vexing struggle with the flesh. But what is the flesh? Well, Paul earlier had told us some things about the flesh. He says, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So by flesh here, although the word can mean skin, I don't think he means skin. But it is me. What is the flesh? It's me. It's my whole being. Paul says, nothing good dwells in me. That is my, whole, my flesh. It is my material and immaterial parts It is what I am in Adam, having been born as a fallen sinner. The flesh is, uh, John Piper described it this way, the untransformed part of my being. My fallen, sinful nature. You see, the flesh is that part of my being that's harassing me and pushing me to do illicit things that are against the law of God. You say, I don't know if I believe that. Well, consider Galatians 5. Go there just for one moment. I'm just about finished in preaching today. But Galatians 5, and I want you to see verse 17. We're pursuing for a moment what is the flesh. Paul says, I serve the law of sin with my flesh. What is the flesh? Well, I want you to see that the flesh, the flesh is that part of us that pushes us and harasses us to do illicit things. Verse 17, for the desires of the what? Galatians 5, 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Skip to verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. What's the flesh? What does it look like? Well, here are its works. This is what it's producing, what it desires. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's the flesh. 
That's that part of me, the untransformed part of my whole being. And this is what it would produce. It produces desires that go against what the Spirit longs and desires for in my life. To prevent, did you notice what he said? To prevent me from doing the things that I want to do. Sounds like Romans 7. So, Paul wants us all to know about the reality. The war within us. With the mind, we might delight in or agree with God's laws. But, in the flesh, we serve the law of sin. Now, in conclusion, we might ask why. Now, Paul doesn't give a lot of imperatives here. He just wants us to know something. He wants us to know this rule. With my mind, I serve the law of God. But with my flesh, the law of sin. Why does Paul want us to know that? Just as a final thought for application, I just want to quickly give you four Four reasons why that's important for you to know. Okay, and they'll go really quickly. Number one, you need to know about this battle inside of you every day, this daily strategic foxhole experience, because one, it will make us long for Jesus. Wait, why are you spending so much time on Romans 7? I, just so you get sick and tired of your flesh and the dwelling power of sin. It's like he was kicked out. Sin was kicked out. Jesus defeated him, but then he keeps coming back in. He's like waging war still. And he's taking me captive, so he's taking me as a prisoner still. I think if we understand this, we will long for Jesus when we see him. Everything will be made right for us. May God give us a greater desire to see Jesus. Experience him. I think he's doing that every day, day by day, just by showing you this struggle with sin. There's only one person who will make this right. It's Jesus. You need him. He needs to come soon. Second reason why I think this is important knowledge for us at Colonial is it will make us long to throw off this polluted, poisoned being that we have and have it replaced with a glorified body completely eradicated from all sin. Again, I don't mean to be be judgmental, but sometimes when we say, I'm not ready to go yet. Now, there could be some good reasons for that, perhaps. But sometimes it's because we don't really know how bad the battle is. Maybe we're not engaged. We don't really understand it as much. But if we really knew this internal conflict, if we took the time to parse it, to really thoroughly look at it, then it would make us long to cast this off and give me something better. Glorified body, no sin nature. Third, third application for us. Why do I need to know this? Why do we need to know this? I think, three, it will strangely encourage us. Pastor was all fired up after the mic got all fixed and stuff. He got like all fired up about this battle 
Like he was like actually enthused to talk about it. And it was really an ugly picture. And then he says, it's my own soul. What a, what a, you know, what an enlightening, encouraging day of worship. Well, I think you can leave here today strangely encouraged. What do you mean, pastor? Well, there's nothing wrong with you. Well, there is something wrong, but we're all in the same boat. You see, I keep feeling sin and fighting it, but others don't seem to have the same battles. I say nonsense. We all have things that we are fighting and struggling through. Uh, If they don't talk about it, it's either because they don't know it or they're just not telling you the truth. It will strangely encourage us. I'm not a freak. Finally, fourth application. Why is this important, Pastor? Why would you spend so much time on this? Because if we understand this, it will help us help others. If we know about this great internal battle that we have with sin, that we will continue to have till we see Jesus, it will help us help others. Some fathers, for instance, struggle to know how to talk to their sons about lust. Well, you can start this way. Nothing good dwells in me. You can say, I serve the law of God in my mind, but I serve the law of sin in my flesh. Start that way, fathers, with your sons. When mothers know the daily war within their own souls, they can speak honestly to their daughters as well about the sins that so easily beset us. When we all recognize the battle in our own hearts, it will help us long for Jesus. It will help us long for glorification. It will help us stay in the battle because we know we're not alone. And it will help us help others, sinners, saved by grace. Let's not forget this week, Colonial. We are in a battle, and we are in this battle until we see Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm thankful for Paul's transparency. His voice is far different than the voice of many Christians today. Father, when we hear someone say, I can't wait to get out of this body. I can't wait to see Jesus and be freed from sin. Sometimes we mildly rebuke them. Don't give up. You still have more life. There's still more to experience in this world. And yet we don't think the way Paul did when he says, I groan, I groan, longing to be clothed with a body, a glorified body, not subject to sin and death. 
Lord, uh, I can see why Paul would say to be absent from the body or how he could say that death was better. It was a promotion into the presence of Christ. To me, to live is Christ. To die, gain. Lord, many of us don't think that way. And so help, Lord, put this in our minds so that we long for Jesus. So that we long for glorification. So that we understand we're not odd. We're all in a battle with the flesh. And so that we can help others near us and counsel through encouragement. Or do a profound work in our hearts. Give us strength for the daily battle as we'll see in the next several sermons through the Spirit, Spirit of God, who sets His desires against our flesh so that we would not sin in the way that we would. Lord, we thank You for this and pray that as we close in song, you might help us respond to this text in the way your spirit would lead. In Jesus' name, amen.